Hi folks, this is Palmer as usual. Sorry for the wobbly audio on this one. It's the price we sometimes pay for taking our guests out for a beverage. You're sure to enjoy it regardless, so happy listening. Hola chicos, buenos días y saludos desde Montevideo. Today, our two scientists team comes from this beautiful spring day in the capital of Uruguay. And our speaker today is Maya Mombrou. How are you? Uh, I'm good, thank you. How are you? Very well, thank you. Yeah, I have to say, we're a bit sad because we're coming to the end of our South American trip and we have to go back home today. But, you know, all good things must come to an end. So you are a graduate student in the Department of Chemistry at the uh, University of the Republic. Yes, exactly. Um, I did my undergrad in the Faculty of Chemistry, or the School of Chemistry, at the University of the Republic, Universidad de la República in Spanish. I, did my, I started my degree actually as a materials chemist. By the end, I changed into a bachelor in chemistry, but I always say that I'm a bachelor in materials chemistry, uh-huh. because basically all the subjects I took were related to material science and materials chemistry. Okay. And so, explain to us what inspired you to do chemistry. I had some kind of, I don't know if I would call it an epiphany when I was in high school, that one day I just said, like, I can do chemistry for my whole life and not be bored about it. So, I kind of realized I wanted to do that. So, I knew that, like, two years before finishing high school, Mm -hmm. which is quite unusual for somebody who's 16 year old to know what they want to do with their life. Yeah, definitely. So I always consider myself very lucky to know that and to be certain after many years of studying that I still wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. I got my bachelor and then I started my graduate studies and I also worked there. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of like trapped by, I wouldn't say trapped <laughs> because it's a bit of a negative connotation, but I'm like, I, I really like it there and I work there and I study there and it's just... <laughs> I like that word. I'm with School of Chemistry. That's very cool. So, can you describe what a nanoparticle is on a scale? Because obviously, for us, it's something that's very tiny, but how tiny is that? The most direct way is to say that you have units, right? You have mm-hmm. meter, centimeter, millimeter. So, a nanometer is way down the down scale, mm-hmm. and it's a millionth of a millimeter. So, that means if you take a millimeter and you divided into a million parts, one tiny part would be a nanometer. So that's, it's kind of difficult to grasp mm-hmm. if, you, if you think about it, like how can I divide that into a million parts? But if you go, if you think of, um, I don't know, what we call microscopic things, things we can see with our eyes, you have a glass. Um, and then if you go even smaller, you might have um, microbes and cells. And for instance, you need a microscope, an optical microscope to see those. Uh, and then if you go even lower, you have the nanometer scale. So basically, a, na- a nanoparticle would be even smaller than a, than a cell. Um, so the thing with um, nano scale objects is that you can't see them within, with your eye, of course. And you can't see them with an optical microscope like you would with a cell or, or, or microbes. You need special tools to see them. You need electron microscopes. So it's, it's very, it's not like, you can see immediately what you get. So you need to study them uh, by to see their size mm-hmm. by different... You need different detection different techniques. Detection techniques. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so the, the specific types of nanoparticles that you study, Yeah. I guess you're trying to create them? Yes, what I do basically, 
uh, I try to what we call in chemistry synthesize them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we basically try to make them by making chemical reactions. So you mix a cup bunch of things and then you usually heat them up mm-hmm. and hopefully you hope you cross your fingers and you hope to get what you want. Uh, there are several techniques that you can use to get nano- nanoparticles. Uh, I mainly use two different ones which are solar thermal synthesis and solution synthesis. I'm gonna start with the second one because it's the easiest one. Basically you have um, like a flask mm-hmm. and you put some what we call precursors which are salts of the different elements that you want to include in your nanoparticle. Mm-hmm. The more elements your nanoparticle has, the more difficult it is to actually get it. Uh-huh. Uh, and then you mix that, you use a solvent which is a liquid in which they dissolve, and then you heat it up. You sometimes can use other additives in order to help control the size and the shape of those nanoparticles because when we talk about nanoparticles, it's usually, you can imagine like a sphere, but they're not only spheres. They can be, actually in, in, in nanoscience, scientists have come up with very funny names sometimes. Everything is nano-something. Mm-hmm. I have come across the term nano-nachos for triangular <laughs> nanoparticles made of gold, which for me was really funny. Uh, Nano-urkins, when they are like urkins, uh, I've got those at times. Um, I don't know, nano worlds, nanospheres, nano anything basically, any shape you have, you put nano before it. Uh, so in order to control that, you can add some additives which we call cupping agents, mm-hmm. which are basically big molecules which adhere to the nanoparticle and like say, oh no, you can't grow this way, you have to grow that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I also when we talk about growing nanoparticles is uh, because usually they're crystalline. Yes. When you talk about crystals, you say that crystals grow. Mm-hmm. When they become larger, they're growing. Yep. So that's something that, for me, comes as very a natural thing to say. But then I realize, like, some people might think, like, how do they grow? Right. Are they yeah. like, I don't know, like human beings? <laughs> they eat something? Well, you actually feed them with atoms and molecules. Yep in a way, uh, and, and they grow. You don't want them to grow too much. That's the thing. Sometimes they grow too much, and it's like, no, I want them to be small. I guess they stop being nano. Yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> so the synthesis is actually a very complex process because, as, as I said, since you can't see them with your bare eyes, you can't just immediately after you get them know, oh, this is nano. You need to study them, see them under a microscope, like a special microscope, which is called electron could be electron transmission microscope or electron scanning microscope, which are two different techniques, very useful for me. Um, so I mainly deal with that, with the synthesis. I try to make them first, hope that they are actually the size that I want, the shape that I want. Because as I told you, if you change the conditions, you can have different particle size, you can have different shapes something that's very important, you want them all to be the same size. Mm-hmm. If I want them to be 20 nanometers, I want them all to be 20 nanometers, because if I want to use them for something, it's easier if they're all the same size, they're all homogeneous, yep. than if they're all different. Mm-hmm. So that that's the main obstacle, I would say, nanoscientists. I don't know if I should call myself a nanoscientist, <laughs> but face when, when, when trying to synthesize something, and to actually get the material that you want. As I was saying, if you increase the number of elements, you have the number of atomic elements. In my case, I deal with three different elements, bismuth, sulfur, and iodine. It's not always easy to get them all how you want them to be. So that's another thing. 
or to get them uh, to be crystalline. I want them to be crystalline. I want them to be ordered. There are things to be in a specific order arrangement. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that doesn't happen because they're so small. Actually, some very small nanoparticles have several hundreds of atoms. Mm-hmm. But when you compare that to macroscopic things, they have billions and billions of atoms. Yep. So it's more easy for those atoms to not be exactly arranged the way you want it. Mm-hmm. So basically, I tried to do that as I was talking about the solution synthesis. There's another one that's called solvent thermal synthesis. And the advantage of that is that you basically have... Um, so basically, it's a pressure cooker, mm-hmm. or smaller, because you don't want to make that amount. Uh, and the advantage is that you can have, for instance, water in a temperature above its, its boiling point, which is 100 degrees, mm-hmm. and you can have it in liquid state. And that yeah. creates like a very harsh environment inside <laughs> your cooker. And that helps you to get the nanoparticles as well. So I tried those two methods, usually. I work with those two, and I try to see if I can get my nanoparticles. Usually, actually, my particles, they tend to grow as nano rods. Uh-huh. So, because of their internal structure, they, they because of the, how the atoms are arranged in that particular compound. I tried to go them to be spheres and tiny and particles, but they like to grow as rods, so I just <laughs> kind of let them be after a while. I accepted that, and, and yeah, I just now I'm just trying to control them to be all the same, uh-huh. which is also not very easy. So I was reading about this, it recently came up on, on Twitter somewhere that um, so the blackest of black colors, is that made from nano rods or something similar? I forget what it's called now. I haven't read it. That's it. But okay. I, I know there's like this super black color thing. Vanta uh, Black is actually as a, how do you say it? An acronym. Okay. That stands for Vertically Aligned Nano Tube Array. Oh, there you go. So they so are tubes. The, the light gets gets into the materials, but it's like a, a, a really tiny forest. Yeah. So it gets lost in there. And yeah. That's why it's, it's perfectly black. And I, I talked I talk to you about it because there's a whole uh, thing with the owner that doesn't want to lend it to artists because it's prepared proprietary. Uh-huh. Although there's one artist, uh, Anish Kapoor, who yeah. has the license to use it and then other people can't. Yeah, and there's a, there's a, a guy who made the pinkest pink, because Quanta black, yeah. black is black, he made the pinkest pink, the most pure pink ever, and if you want to buy it, you have to promise that you are not Anish Kapoor, yep. and you are not going to lend it to it, and it's like oh. a whole Frida Black I didn't know that. But, but that makes sense because there are a lot of materials that. Another example of nanomaterials in nature in this case is these butterflies, which have like a very kind of iridescent blue. Mm-hmm. They're very beautiful. And you would think that that might be some kind of pigment they have in their wings. And it's actually nanostructures that are in their wings. And the way that they reflect light make that color. So if you see them under cholera, something that filters the light mm-hmm. somehow, you won't see that. And oh, there's wow. some kind of beetle, which is uh, like this very bright uh, green mm-hmm. that has the same kind of effect. Yeah. And, and and it's quite cool how... Because that's another thing with nanoscience and nanomaterials. Think, people think it's a very new thing, mm-hmm. nanotechnology and with nanoparticles of this and that, that, that you see that nowadays a lot of things happen. And it's actually... 
uh, a lot of nanostructures that we call are present in nature. And actually, we as scientists take inspiration from them in order to build things. Oh, how can we can we do that? Um, I don't know, like if you have, you know, nowadays you have clothes and fabrics that propel water mm-hmm. and they actually have nanostructures in them. And then you have in nature, as a counterpart, you have some leaves that propel water as well. Mm-hmm. And it's because they have nanostructures in them. They have like tiny hairs, yep. which makes them kind of like propel water. So I think it's it's not only man-made things that yeah. are nanoscale. That I did not realize. It's very cool. Yeah, there are lots of examples in nature. Um, not only about nanomaterials, but materials in general that, mm-hmm. that we can take inspiration from and, and they're quite cool actually the butterfly is one of the most well-known examples and i think it's one of the most beautiful because if you look at it i don't remember now the name to say it uh but it, it's the morpho butterfly morpho butterfly uh, <laughs> <Cute stuff. laughs> the morpho butterfly then uh it's it's really it's really beautiful and and, and to think that that's actually that the light is it's not the, a color Mm-hmm. It's yeah. reflects in a certain way because it has these tiny structures. Mm-hmm. An interesting thing about nanomaterials is that they change the properties from materials that are the same elements but in bulk. What we call mm-hmm. bulk is macroscopic that we can see them with our eyes. The, the typical example is gold, for instance. If mm-hmm. you have gold, you have it well, golden in yes. color, it's metallic, it's, it's shiny. And if you have nanoparticles of gold, depending on the size they have, they can have different colors. So usually you can have them because they're so tiny, you can have them um, like in a solution, in a liquid, mm-hmm. and they're just floating around. And that liquid can be red, can be green, can be... It depends on the size. So that's a very interesting uh, that weird. has a lot of applications. Uh-huh. One, I don't know, like an application that comes to mind right now about nanoparticles that change color is in in screens now mm-hmm. you have i don't know i think samsung has this qled technology of, of new screens mm-hmm. and basically they have what they call quantum dot nanoparticles that's why the qled uh-huh. mixed with the led that we all know of yeah. screens and quantum dots are basically nanoparticles it's another way of calling them they're very small nanoparticles and because of the size and they can change color they can use them as screens uh-huh. that's pretty amazing um, so obviously, as you say, all of these things have a particular use, and we we're basically purposing them for our yeah. own benefit. Um, what are the specific uses that you're looking at? Uh, I'm looking at uh, a detection of ionizing radiation. That means gamma rays, X rays, uh, because of the the research group that I work in has been working with that particular application. Uh, so basically, what you want is the nanoparticles can absorb that radiation and then they turn it into an electric signal and then you collect that signal and you can know how much radiation that nanoparticle has acquired. And what I'm trying to to achieve, which is a very long-term thing, is in order to be able to use less um, ionizing radiation because we know all the benefits that the X-rays and gamma rays can have in medicine, in industry, but we also know of the damage that can cause if not handled properly or if, if handled in very high doses. So if we can use less amount of that, but in order to be able to use less amount of that, we need to detect that. We need to be able to, to know. 
Uh, so if we make more uh, sensitive mm-hmm. detectors, that way we can use less of that radiation yep. and it will be more safe. Okay. I have a question from one of our friends, Sahil, who is he's actually a member of our Taste of Science team and he runs the events in um, San Francisco. But he used to be a nanoscientist himself, as I recall. And unfortunately for him, his PhD product, project just never got to a stage where he was going to be able to um, complete it. So sadly, he never finished his PhD. Although I don't think he's particularly unhappy. He enjoyed his experience, but I guess that's how life goes. And that's how <laughs> science goes. Yeah. Um, so he says, this one is kind of vague. As a former experimental nanotech person myself, I used to always get asked, so are you building nanobots that will go inside my body and do things I have no control over while they're there? What do you say when, or what happens when you say I work on nanoparticles? Yeah, I think the term nanobots, especially, at least I remember hearing it in movies and such, Mm -hmm. it's like you can imagine this, it's like a machine but just super tiny and it's, I think it's, it's not like that how it works mm-hmm. nowadays we can make very very tiny machines there's something called molecular machines which are basically molecules that behave as a machine but I think it's not like this tiny machine with um, I don't know like moving parts yeah. and everything uh, but I think you can use nanomaterials and nanotechnology to put things into your body but it's not it's maybe like a particle mm-hmm. And which I have one of my friends in my research group is, is studying something related to that. She wants to make uh, nanoparticles which can be go, go into the body and can help, uh, again, using ionizing radiation mm-hmm. for therapy, can help reduce the amount because it will kind of make your tissue more sensitive mm-hmm. to that radiation. The problem with putting nanoparticles into your body is that you have to be careful that they're not toxic. They don't accumulate in your body, so it's much more complex. Regarding like nanobots going to your body, I, I don't think we come to that stage mm-hmm. yet. And I think if we do, it's not going to be like a super tiny machine. It, we can refer to them as nanobots, but they're like they're not like you imagine a machine like I don't know something with arms. <laughs> it, it's not like they're going to put a. a tiny robot inside you that is going to make you say stuff or record your conversations. Yeah. Yeah. I think or, that's what people think yeah. with, with yeah. nanobots, like spy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so he had something more related to this idea of kind of radiation therapy that you're talking about. And, um, oh, I guess you haven't got to this stage yet. He said, I'd be curious to know about any harmful effects of leaving those kinds of nanoparticles inside the body because... Obviously, these things are there to absorb radiation, right? Yes, but the thing is, uh, they they don't absorb just any radiation. Mm-hmm. They would absorb, for instance, X-rays or gamma rays, or r- radiation that's used for therapy. So it's not like you're going to walk around and, and just be exposed to radiation mm-hmm. just randomly and be harmed by that. And also, the that makes the tissue more sensitive is not... It's not like it's going to kill... The nanoparticle is not going to kill the tissue by being exposed to the radiation. It's just going to make it more sensitive. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm... Yeah, making sense too. And also, the main problem with introducing foreign agents mm-hmm. to your body is that 
you don't know if they can, as I said, if that they can maybe accumulate in certain organs, or you don't know the long-term effects that they might have. That's the main issue with that. That's the yep. main issue with, with introducing things into your body that you don't know. It's not. I think the problem is not the radiation in itself. Mm-hmm. It's the nanoparticle, the material that you can introduce that I don't know that might in the end do something. For instance. Um, there was some research in, I think it was carbon nanotubes, and they said like, oh, they're, they're not harmful to, to humans and everything, and then they found out they actually are, because of, not because of the carbon itself, or maybe carbon, mm-hmm. uh, but because of the shape, of the nanotube shape. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same I think is with the titanium dioxide, but you can see actually, you can see nanoparticles of titanium dioxide uh, in in sunscreens, that's uh-huh. like one of the most basic applications of nanomaterials because they reflect light and mm-hmm. they are better to, to protect you against the sun. But at the same time, like now there's some certain like controversy because maybe it's not as safe as we thought it was. So the, it's, um, again, it's a long-term thing. So yeah. there are always studies about, there's even a discipline called nanotoxicology. Uh-huh. So you have nano for everything, as I yes. said. Uh, and they study. and. The, another thing is that there's not so much regulation concerning nanomaterials. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole other thing which I don't know much about. But I know it's 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 not very well... It, it's difficult to study the toxicology of nanomaterials. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because uh, the, his next kind of question was, if you're worried about it accumulating, is there an easy way to try and expel nanoparticles from the body? Um... As I say, that, that's that's not my main. I, I'm more like not dealing with bio things. I'm yeah. Like, uh, but from what I know, uh, I think you can tailor that nanoparticle. That's something that you do. You can't just put nanoparticles in your body. Your antibodies are going to detect that that's mm-hmm. something foreign and are going to like expel it. But if you want it to actually work, you need it to get to your target organs or to whatever it is you want it to get. But then, of course, you want them to be excreted from your body. Um, so you need to tailor the surface of that nanoparticle in order to go to that target organ, mm-hmm. but then to be able to be felt. So there's a lot of work in that. Mm-hmm. So you need to actually get the nanoparticle, get the material you want, get it pure. Then you need to tailor it. You need to cover the surface. And it's not always that easy to cover the surface with what you want. The final application is long term. And in my case, I work with detectors, so I just have to make sure that the nanoparticles are okay and they behave well. But if you work in a, for something biomedical, there's a whole other range of things you need to take into account, yeah. which is much more difficult. Yeah. So one of the other things that you're potentially working on is the use of nanoparticles within solar materials, is that yes. right? Solar panels? I haven't done much about it, but I'm very interested because I'm very interested in renewable energies and how we can, um, especially energy from the sun. The sun is like basically an inexhaustible source of energy and if we can actually get, I don't know, like 1% of the energy we could, uh, it would be great. So I, I would try to study also my nanomaterials for that. But for that, I need to make sure that the nanomaterials itself is first what I want and then try to study. And when you want to build solar cells, there's also a complexity. It's not just my material. My materials, for instance, is going to ask as an absorber. It's going to absorb the sunlight. It's going to turn it into 
elec- uh, um, an electric signal. Mm-hmm. But then you need to make sure that that electric signal doesn't get lost in the way in your material, and then it needs to go to another material because the solar cell is not just one material, it's an array of different kind of materials mm-hmm. and different components and different parts. So then you have to make sure that all of them work in harmony mm-hmm. and that you actually get. So it's, it's just one tiny part. Something that I learned very early on in, in my career was I did this course on um, solar oxide fuel cells, which are basically kind of like uh, solid batteries. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of research going on in that. And that's when I realized that actually it's hardly ever a scientist would go through all of the process of creating a material. So we have somebody that talked to us about one part of that um battery, another another part. So everybody was trying to optimize one part mm-hmm. of that battery. Nobody was trying to make the whole thing yeah. at once because it's, it's, I wouldn't say impossible, but it's very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. So then I realized like, oh, this is not, it's, it's just, it's a very kind of ant work, you know, like very slow <laughs> yeah. progress. You know, in movies you see, they just, oh, I'm going to find the cure and in three days they have the cure for it. Oh. I'd like to know more about the process by which you actually create these nanomaterials because it feels a bit like a craft or, or like a recipe, like it baking. Is. Like you put things in the right order and... Yes, it is. It is. It is. That's why I, I always emphasize how making the nanomaterial is the first step and it's the most difficult step. After you have it, then you, you can study the, 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 first the, the make, make yeah, of, yeah, of the yeah. nanomaterial. Uh, in my case, you need to choose the correct ingredients as you would say I, we call it precursors which are usually salts of different elements that you want to put uh, you have to choose the correct solvent for it which is the medium in which they're going to be dissolved or suspended um, so it, it is kind of like a craft and you try and you try and you change something and you don't get what you want and then you say okay what can I do to actually make them smaller for instance because they're too big I don't want them to be too big so you say okay maybe I can increase the temperature maybe I can leave it for longer time or shorter time because if you leave it more time they will actually grow more uh, but then how much shorter because if I don't leave it long enough maybe yeah. I will actually get the material yeah. And then maybe I can, as I was, I mentioned some additives that you can add to control the shape and size. But yes. so there's a lot of things that you can change in the making of a nanomaterial. So you have to study the, and it's a lot of trial and error thing. And and as I was saying, it, the more elements you have in your material, it's more difficult to actually get them to be in the place that you want and to get the phases you want. Even sometimes. Um, if you have one, 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 in my case, it's, it should be easy because yeah. I have one bismuth, one sulfur, one iodine. Yeah. But sometimes it's more difficult because you have three quarters of yeah. one element. I don't know, it's 68% yeah. of another one. You have a mixture, which is yeah. what we call non stoichiometric So it's not one, one, one. It's, it's a different ratio. So that increases the difficulty. If you want to know like how I do it, for instance, the synthesis I do is quite simple. I have one of my precursors has bismuth and sulfur, so that's a good thing because I already have two of my elements. And then I add iodine, and then I put it in my pressure cooker, okay. a tiny one, not literally. It's what we call in the the actual term is an autoclave. Okay. Uh, and then I put it in an oven yeah. at 180 degrees. And so I, like cooking. 
something like cooking basically yeah. you always need most of the times you need heat yeah. in order to make to what you want you need yeah because you need energy yeah. you need to provide energy somehow uh, if you find a synthesis that doesn't need heat tell me so because it's like one of the <laughs> things that especially if you want we're always we're doing these things in the lab but you're always trying to think long term and trying to think okay if one day in the future I need to do this in a large scale I need to have a synthesis method that's yeah. easy to make that doesn't require a lot of energy and also another very important thing that nowadays is, is becoming more and more important is what we call green chemistry so we're trying to use the salts we use the precursors the solvents uh, the energy sources everything try to be to have the lowest impact possible on the environment. Because a lot of synthesis produce secondary things. You have what you want, but you also have another bunch of stuff that you don't want, and you have to get rid of them. And that kind of things, if you don't dispose of them well, or even if you dispose of them well, you're still creating waste. So, so and a lot of that can be incredibly toxic. Yes, uh, I mean, I used when I started. I used to work with, with yeah. mercury, for mm-hmm. instance, like a mercury salt, um, and I was just use, using gloves and everything. But you produce waste, you produce mercury waste, and you have to deal with that. So following on that, um, the question then is: so there is a lot of trial and error involved in producing the mercury yes. one. If you're cooking um, and you're cooking. Spanish omelette, for instance. It's, it's easy to know that you got it right because you try, you taste it. And, yeah. And it tastes either good or bad. How do you know that you got it right? Well, the first thing I do is I want to know if I got my material. The first thing to you know is like the first um, yeah. tick on the list is okay, I got this. I got what I wanted, like the identity of it. Mm. And in my case, because they are crystalline materials, I can use a technique which is called uh, powder x ray diffraction. So, Basically, what you do with your nanomaterials is you poke them somehow, and then you get a signal, and then from that signal you can either see if they are like their identity, the elements they have, the shape, the size. It depends. In this particular case, with X-ray diffraction, what you poke them with is with X-rays. So you poke them, you get a signal, and from that signal you can see if, in this case, you get diffraction peaks. What we call. I get a graph and you see, okay, if these peaks match what some people have already studied and know that it corresponds to this material, I got my material. Everything is great. So then we can move on to the next stage. Like, okay, I got my material. Now, is it actually nano? So, yeah, so I need to know the size because that's what I want. So what I do usually is I watch them under a microscope. In this case, an electronic microscope, because as we were saying, it's so tiny that you can't see it with an optical microscope. Uh, so you prepare the sample. It's it's. I'm I'm always fascinated because uh, electron microscopes are very big equipments. Like the height is more or less of a human being standing up. And they're very very big, and the sample that you have, it's about like it's it's a disc where you put your sample, which is about three to five millimeters. So you put this very, very tiny copper disc in which you have your sample, your material, into this giant equipment in order to see the nanoparticles. That's, I think, I don't know, maybe that's one of the reasons why I really like this technique in particular. And also because it's one of the techniques where you can actually see in a way. You're not seeing because it's not light. You don't use light to poke them. In this case, what you use is electrons to poke your material and see and 
with a detector you can form an image of what you have. And by that image you can see the nanoparticles and see their shape and see their size. And with this technique you can have another kind of pokings, mm -hmm. uh, which you can get other information as well. You can get information of which elements it has, in how, in which, pro which proportion, um, I don't know, there are like a whole array of things that you can actually do with the microscope. I like to learn them, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I only, for now, I only see them and see if they, if they actually uh, have the elements that I want. But I know there's a lot, there's a lot of potential in, in that technique. The only drawback, I think, is that as I was saying, your sample is so tiny, you're looking actually at, at I don't know, less than milligrams of your, your sample that you might not be actually saying everything that you, you can't see everything. Of yeah. course you can't. Yeah. You produce a few grams of a powder yeah. and then from that you take like some nanoparticles. <laughs> so what do you see yourself doing in the future? Huh. <laughs> it's one of those horrible interview questions you get. Yeah. Where do you see yourself in 10 years' time? Uh, hopefully, I always, um, I, as I say, I consider myself lucky because I started studying something which I thought I liked. I hope I'm still doing this. And also, uh, after I started working in university, I realized I really like academia, mm -hmm. which I know is not, it has a lot of drawbacks and, and, <laughs> and it's not the easiest job ever. Uh, but I really like it. I think it's it's what I want to do. So hopefully in 10 years time, I'm still in university. Hopefully, I mean, I don't know. Professor. Well, I wouldn't say in 10 years, I'm going to get a professorship. But, but yeah, hopefully I'm, I, I have moved forward in my academic career. I really don't see myself, you never know where life will take you, but I really don't see myself, like, as I say, in the real world. Mm -hmm. I want to stay the cocoon <laughs> of basic science yeah it doesn't have to be basic basic i do yeah. like basic science and i don't think i think it's it's quite difficult to to get to like i i, I don't think in 10 years time i'm going to be producing ionizing radiation detections from nanomaterials if i do that will be awesome yeah but thinking realistically it's it's quite difficult but hopefully I will have made contributions to the scientific community and will continue to teach the students there and to, I don't know, talk for hours and then to children and have them their head full of science. So, so yeah. Wonderful. I think actually you're our first ever graduate student guest. Oh, so we very much appreciate it. I feel like a baby. I always joke that I'm a baby <laughs> in academia because I'm only starting, even though I started as an undergrad, so I've been doing this for about five years. Mm -hmm. But I, I still, I'm, I'm always thinking there's so much I need to learn, so much I need to to do, and, and just so many things I don't know yet. Oh, but that doesn't change as you get older and get <laughs> further in academia, honestly. Okay. All you realize is how much you don't know. Um, so with that, we'll wish you the very best of luck in your career. And thank you again for speaking to us today. Thanks to you guys. It, it's, it's been my first time doing a podcast of any sort. So it, it was an experience. Very cool. Thank you. Nanoparticles weren't very nano. 
and and I, I okay, I need to use the capping agent. Which one could I use? So I finally found a um, thiol, which is a molecule with a with a sulfur at the end. So I found okay, I can use this because the sulfur will attach it to my nanoparticle. And this and that. okay, that's good. And um, thiols or, or organic molecules which have sulfur are characterized because they have this foul, like rotten egg smell. They're really, really horrible. And the smaller they are, the more volatile they are also. So, because we didn't have this particular file in my laboratory, I went to the organic chemistry people and was like, hey guys, do you have some of the file I can use? Yeah, sure, go check in that cupboard, we have some. Okay, so I went into a cupboard which probably had 50 years. The things inside there probably have 30 years or so. I grabbed this really nasty old bottle which probably haven't been opened in a long time. So we can imagine all the molecules there just flying around in the, in the contents. I go to my lab, I go to the fume cupboard because, of course, you already know that that's going to stink. So you get prepared. So I put this in, in the fume cupboard, I open it, I just want four milliliters. So that's like a very small quantity, I don't need much. I open it, I put the fume cupboard on maximum speed of, of um, sucking the air. I take out a bit, I transfer it to a small vial, I close it. That would have taken me around roughly 10 seconds, no more. After I do that, the whole lab is stinking like <laughs> really bad. Like the office is stinking really bad. I'm stinking really bad. My code is stinking. We had to leave. I was lucky enough that I was only with one other person at that moment, so I didn't affect much people. But me and my coworker we had to leave for like half an hour of the lab. And I remember having to return that bottle to the organic people in the first floor and going in the elevator and a guy just like kind of looking at me sideways. And I'm like, yes, it's me. And suffice to say, I never ever opened that little vial again. That was probably about, about four years ago and it's still in the fume cupboard. I haven't touched it. You know what? Do I really need that cupping agent? Do I really need them to be that small? Nah. Noticed a second voice featured in this week's podcast, which belongs to our friend Soledad Machado. Normally at this point we would plug one of our own gigs, but since Soledad has some amazing outreach of her own, we think you should go and check those out. Firstly, Bardo Científico is an initiative getting scientists to give amusing monologues. Secondly, Montevideo will see its very own version of Taste of Science this year in the form of a festival called Gusto a Ciencia. You can find links to both of these on our website. Hasta la próxima.
and they, they started playing with scotch tape uh-huh. and they, they wrote on the scotch tape and started like separating it and then they said oh there might be a Nobel Prize here so <laughs> <laughs> take that MacGyver <laughs>